Hello there, and welcome to City Breaks London, episode 14, Charles Dickens' London. I'm Marion Jones. You're in the middle of my City Breaks London series, just over halfway, actually. If you've been listening so far, you'll know that we've been to all the big hitters, the Tower, Westminster, Covent Garden, Buckingham Palace, and that we're now in the middle of a literary phase. So last week's episode focused on Chaucer and Shakespeare, and today we come to Dickens. One of those authors who perhaps best defines London, or maybe more accurately, best defined London at the period during which he lived in it. Dickens used to explore all over London. London is all over Dickens' novels, and indeed some of his other writings, essays and whatnot, so there's lots and lots to explore in the episode. I'm going to start with a brief look at his own life and his various links with the city going, of course, to indulge in one or two very short extracts, just to give a flavour of some of the many, many things he wrote about London. And then we're going to visit not one, but two museums. So firstly, the Dickens Museum, in a house in which he actually lived himself for two or three years, which is still decorated today, as it would have been in his time, with some of his actual belongings and furniture, as well as being a display area for all sorts of other papers and memorabilia to do with him. And then secondly, going to pop into the fairly nearby Foundling Museum, both because it gives the flavour of some of the things Dickens was writing about, and also, in fact, because he was connected with it, being one of its major supporters. OK then, so, Charles Dickens himself. He did not, for all his later connections, actually start life in London. He was born in a suburb of Portsmouth, and spent his early childhood in Kent, before the family moved to London, hoping, I think, to try and make something of themselves. Unfortunately, exactly the opposite happened. His father, John Dickens, quickly got into debt, in fact into such debt that he was imprisoned in 1824, and although his wife and the younger children were imprisoned with him, that being the custom in those days, Charles at this stage had reached the ripe old age of 12, and it was decided that he could be more of a help to the family if he was sent out to work at a blacking factory in the St Paul's area of London. This was an experience which traumatised Dickens, which he lived with for the rest of his life, and which found its way in one way or another into lots of his different novels. In fact, he was able eventually to leave the blacking factory and go back to school, but not for long. Soon after that, he started work initially as a clerk, working, as I think I said in the episode at the time, in the Inns of Court in London, and then he became a parliamentary reporter. The first time there was any notion that he would be able to make his living by the pen. It turned out, no surprise to us today of course, that he had a remarkable ability to describe the things he was seeing, in a way that everyone wanted to read. It wasn't long before he started some attempts at fiction too, and in 1833, at the age of only 21, he published his first literary sketches. His writing was already funny, It was already showing signs of being quite radical, and people liked that, wanted to read what he'd written. So he was encouraged to go on, and by 1836, he was able to publish his first novel, The Pickwick Papers. And as a novelist, he got really the dream start. Here's what it says in the guidebook to the Charles Dickens Museum about the reception his first novel, Pickwick Papers, was given. This innovative and unusual work took the nation and readers all over the world by storm, and Dickens was soon established as the most popular writer of the day, with Oliver Twist, Nicholas Nickleby, and the old curiosity shop 
all enhancing his great success. So he was established as a writer, he was starting to make some serious money, and it turned out that he was going to need that, because in the same year, 1836, he got married to Catherine Hogarth, with whom, over the next 15 years or so, he had no fewer than 10 children. Throughout that time, so during the 1840s, his fame and his fortune just grew and grew. He had a massive success, for example, with his novel The Christmas Carol, and also with Dombey and Son, and he began to move to into other things. So he founded a weekly magazine, for example. He threw himself into social projects, became a great fundraiser for charities, supporting causes like Great Ormond Street Hospital for sick children and the Founding Museum, and taking a great interest too in the theatre. He and his family became very involved in productions. He used to love rehearsing plays and designing sets, directing the plays sometimes, and also giving public readings of his own works. All of this occupied much of his time during the 1850s, and then suddenly things took a different route, because in 1858, through his work with the theatre, he met and fell in love with a young actress called Ellen Ternan. This led to the breakdown of his family, he separated from his wife, and he wrote some of his darkest novels, so Great Expectations, for example, and Our Mutual Friend, in this period. He was still working at full throttle on other things too, running his magazine, going on lecture tours to give public readings, including to America. He was restless, he slept very little, he exhausted himself, and his health went rapidly downhill until, in 1870, he died after a stroke. You do get from the exhibits at the Dickens Museum quite an idea of the daily routine of his writing life, how he would begin at 8am and write for three or four hours every morning in his study. A whole mix of things, journalism, novels, often working in fact on two books at once, in order to rent property and maintain the ever-growing number of children he needed to earn very well. So he had a bit of a habit of taking on lots of commissions. We know, for example, that at one period he was doing two weeks every month on Oliver Twist and the other two weeks on Nicholas Nickleby. When the morning writing period came to an end, he would often go out to lunch at one of his clubs. He belonged to several, the Garrick, for example, the Parthenon, the Athenaeum, and then the afternoons were often devoted to charitable work, visits or meetings at some of the many charities that he supported, the Theatrical Artists Benevolent Fund, for example, the Founding Hospital the Literary Friendly Society. His social conscience could be seen in that, and also, of course, in his works. So if you think of, for example, Oliver Twist, you can see that as an attack on the new poor law, recently introduced, which broke up families and said that if they weren't able to work and support themselves, they would be sent to the workhouse. That drawing, of course, directly on his own experiences. Then there's his novel Hard Times, a criticism of the education system and saying that the focus on facts, facts, facts wasn't really what was needed, and that there should be much more creativity. There's Bleak House, too, his savage satire on the legal system. But don't get the idea that Dickens wasn't also very sociable. He certainly was. So after mornings of writing, afternoons of charitable work, the evenings were given over to dinner with friends very often, at which there'd be lots of good food, impromptu readings of works, parlour games, lots of conversation. Dickens himself was a lively host, described, for example, as follows in the guidebook to the Dickens Museum. Most people who met Dickens were dazzled by his personality and striking appearance. 
He was fashionable and self-assured. His taste in dress was, throughout his life, remarkable for its bright colours and gaudiness. So, after that rather lightning thumbnail sketch of Charles Dickens, let's have a look at some of his writing and at how London features all over the place in it. To start with then, the London weather. A daily topic of conversation for us today, for foreigners who visit us. And none of this was different in the 19th century. You frequently get references to what was happening weather-wise in the city. Here, for example, from the opening of Bleak House, is a description of what Dickens himself calls the implacable November weather. It is so wet and muddy, he says, that really, you wouldn't be surprised if you met a dinosaur coming the other way. A megalosaurus, as he puts it, describing it as being 40 feet long or so, and waddling like an elephantine lizard up Hoban Hill. He describes the way the smoke coming out of the chimney pots turns the drizzle black, and the flakes of soot floating about as if they were snowflakes, and the complete lack of sun. And here he is then continuing about the general misery of the rain and the mud. Quote, Dogs, undistinguishable in mire. Horses, scarcely better, splashed to their very blinkers. Foot passengers jostling one another's umbrellas in a general infection of ill temper and losing their foothold at street corners, where tens of thousands of other foot passengers have been slipping and sliding since the day broke, adding new deposits to the crust upon crust of mud, sticking at those points tenaciously to the pavement and accumulating compound interest. If you've been to London on a wet November day, you might recognise some of that. If you haven't been to London, please don't let it put you off. It's absolutely, I promise you, not always like that. And here's a little extract in which Dickens is explaining his endless fascination for London, for just wandering about the streets. I think it was written while he was a court reporter, and he's explaining how, whenever he gets a little spare moment, he's off to see what he can find. Looking for little scenes and characters and bits and pieces that will probably end up in his writing at some stage. Okay, so he writes, We have a most extraordinary partiality for lounging about the streets. Whenever we have an hour or two to spare, there is nothing we enjoy more than a little amateur vagrancy, walking up one street and down another and staring into shop windows and gazing about as if, instead of being on intimate terms with every shop and house in Hoban, the Strand, Fleet Street and Cheapside, a whole were an unknown region to our wandering mind. And here he is then in chapter 21 of Oliver Twist, describing the idea of London coming to wake early one morning. Oliver and Mr Sykes, who's just captured him after his pickpocketing adventure, are making their way through Bethnal Green Road. Day's just about to break. The street lights are just being turned out. The earliest country wagons are just arriving towards the city. Stagecoaches are bringing the first visitors to the city for the day. And all the working people are just beginning to arrive. So, quote, The public houses, with gas lights burning inside, were already open. By degrees, other shops began to be unclosed, and a few scattered people were met with. Then came struggling groups of labourers going to their work. Then men and women with fish baskets on their heads, donkey carts laden with vegetables, chaise carts filled with livestock or whole carcasses of meat, milkwomen with pails, an unbroken concourse of people trudging out with various supplies to the eastern suburbs of the town. That just sounds like a scene that he'd witnessed many times, doesn't it? 
There are also bits and pieces in the novel that very much come from his own personal experience. For example, the fact that his father had been in prison at Marshalsea. By the time he came to write Little Dorrit, in 1857, the actual prison had been demolished, but in Dickens' memory it certainly lived on, and he describes it at the beginning of the novel. Quote, it was an oblong pile of barrack building, partitioned into squalid houses, standing back to back, so that there were no back rooms. Environed by a narrow paved yard, hemmed in by high walls, duly spiked on top. When he finished Little Dorrit, he wrote a preface to the novel, describing how he'd recently been to visit the site again, and describing the gloomy effect it had on him. Quote, Whosoever goes into Marshalsea Court, turning out of Angel Court, leading to Bermondsey, will find his feet on the very paving stones of the extinct Marshalsea Jail, and will stand upon the crowding ghosts of many miserable years. In the days when Dickens's father was in Marshalsea Prison, there was a second jail, the King's Bench, just a few streets away, also a debtor's prison, and one which Dickens put into David Copperfield, sending Mr Micawber there, when he fell into debt. And it's exactly on that spot where you get one of the most famous passages of Dickens ever, the one where David Copperfield has gone to visit Mr Micawber in jail, and Mr Micawber is explaining how he got there. Quote, Mr. Micawber was waiting for me within the gate, and we went up to his room, top story but one, and cried very much. He solemnly conjured me to take warning by his fate, and to observe that if a man had twenty pounds a year for his income, and spent nineteen pounds, nineteen shillings and sixpence, he would be happy, but that if he spent twenty pounds and one shilling, he would be miserable. And then, of course, ever the comic touch, the next sentence reads, after which he borrowed a shilling off me for a porter. So there are certainly traces of Dickens to be found in the London streets, if you know where to look. But definitely the easiest place to find a real sense of the man and his works and his life that he led in London is the Charles Dickens Museum, which is at 48 Doughty Street, nearest tube, Russell Square. If you go there, what you'll find is a typical Georgian terraced house, the one that Dickens himself apparently called my house in town. It was the first proper house that he bought in London, and although he lived in various other properties across the city, this is the only one of his London homes which still survives today. He moved in in 1837 and stayed only about two years, but they were two important years. He was newly married, his first two daughters, Mary and Kate, were born here, and he wrote Oliver Twist and Nicholas Nickleby in the study which you can visit if you go on a tour of the house. The rooms are all laid out in early Victorian style, so pretty much as it was when Dickens lived there. Some of his own personal effects are still there, and there are lots of books and portraits and letters and manuscripts to peruse on your way round. I think I read somewhere that they actually own over a 100,000 items relating to Dickens. That makes it sound like a massive museum, which it really isn't. Five stories, I think, and two or three rooms on each one. Definitely a visit I'd recommend on which you can see, for example, on the ground floor, the dining room where Dickens and his wife hosted so many dinners. Apparently they used to have up to 14 guests. Remember that if you go round, because it's not a huge room. But you can picture some of the leading writers and actors and publishers of the day all passed through that room when they were invited to the dinners at which Dickens himself would preside in his colourful clothing that I mentioned a few minutes ago. 
Below the ground floor, there's the wash house and the scullery and the kitchen, giving the idea that, of course, they had some servants, probably a cook, a housemaid, a nurse and a manservant. And it serves, too, as a reminder of the living conditions in those days. There's a massive copper, for example, where all the water for washing was heated. And in which, possibly, if the story of Mrs Cratchit in A Christmas Carol was anything to go by, occasionally they also used to steam puddings. Back upstairs, there's the morning room, which was really the family room, and the drawing room, where perhaps more visitors would be entertained. You can imagine Dickens in there, doing his readings for family and guests. And perhaps the room that you'll be most interested in, Dickens's study, where he spent his mornings writing, trying to keep up with that busy schedule that he'd committed to, so that he could afford the rent for the house. There's a desk, of course, not entirely sure whether that was actually his or not, but there's also the reading table that he had made for his public lectures. And that, I think, is the actual one he used. It's also a room today in which they've collected lots of different editions of his works. Foreign translations, first editions, all sorts of things. On the upper floors, there's Dickens's bedroom, the one where his wife Catherine almost certainly gave birth to the two daughters who were born in this house, Mary in March 1838 and Katie in October 1839. Then there's a room marked Mary Hogarth's room with a tragic story attached to it. So Mary was Catherine's younger sister. I think she was about 16 or 17 and she came to live in and help with the children, help her sister generally. She got on very well with Dickens and her sister and so it was an absolute shock to both of them when she suddenly died at the age of 17 from, it's believed, heart failure. Dickens actually never got over this. It's believed to have informed some of the writing he did about death scenes in his novels and he it was who wrote the epitaph for her gravestone, on which the following words are carved. Young, beautiful and good. God numbered her with his angels. There's also the nursery, where the two children would have slept with their nurse, and where today there are displays about Dickens's own childhood, including a large window grill from Marshalsea Prison, as a reminder of that terrible period when his own father was in the debtor's prison. Lots of other things to look at as you go around, so more of his possessions, playbills for some of his performances, engravings and photographs of him, extracts from some of his manuscripts actually in his own handwriting, and so on and so on. A place, I think, where you really can get a feel for Dickens and the life that he lived, even though he wasn't here, actually, for all that long. You get a snapshot of that period of his life from the actual building, and lots of information about much of the rest from the memorabilia and the documents which are on display. Another way to really discover the London of Charles Dickens is to go on a guided walk and there are a couple of companies I'd like to mention which I know do those and do them very well. One is called London Walking Tours. I'll put the website address to this one and the other one in the notes at the end of the episode. So they offer a couple of walks, one of which is called A Truly Dickensian Perambulation where you'll be taken, for example, to the Inns of Court, which are pretty much as they were when Dickens worked there for a lawyer's firm before he got into journalism. That's the place where the person guiding the walk may well tell you the story about Dickens being so bored that he used to sit in the upstairs office and drop cherry stones on the hats of passers-by just to amuse himself. And of course we know that he described this very place in some of his later novels. I don't think he liked lawyers, and at one stage... I think in the opening to Bleak House, he described it as, quote, 
one of the most depressing institutions in brick and mortar known to the children of men. I think I read a little description of the Inns of Court shrouded in fog from the opening of Bleak House in the Inns of Court episode. On the same tour, you might go past the old Curiosity Shop, a building dating from the 16th century, so definitely a building that Dickens would have known. The current owners would have you believe that this was where he actually set his book, The Old Curiosity Shop, although in fact it's believed that this may not be true. And then on a second tour offered on the London Walking Tours website, there's a talk that will take you past the site of Marshalsea Prison and through the streets around Borough Market, the very streets where characters like Oliver Twist and David Copperfield came to life. On the same tour, you might go past the Crossbones Burial Ground, where paupers and prostitutes were buried, actually as early as the 14th century, but right up to the middle of the 19th century too, so again, a place that Dickens would have known and which would have set him thinking about the fate of the poor. You'll be taken past what the website refers to as a splendid sequence of cobblestone courtyards, each one of which was once the entrance to an old coaching inn, the type of inn that Dickens himself would have known. Perhaps you'll pause outside the church of St George the Martyr, which was known these days even as the Little Dorrit Church, because the character of Little Dorrit slept in there in the novel. And this fact is marked in the window of the church because there's a kneeling figure of Little Dorrit herself in stained glass to mark the fact that in the novel the character was both baptised and married in that very church. You might also see what can be called Nancy's Steps, so a set of steps in one of the archways of London Bridge on which, in the novel Oliver Twist, the character of Nancy betrayed Bill Sykes, a key scene which was going to lead to terrible consequences for poor Nancy. So on either of those tours you get a flavour of places that Dickens actually knew, and you get some stories about places which turned out to have significance in the novels themselves. Alternative tours are available, of course, and I'd like to include London Walks on that. I've been on quite a few London Walks myself, actually. Great guides, really good, definitely recommend. Anyway, you can find more about them on www.walks.com. Again, I'll put the address at the end. And just a few notes on one of the tours they offer on Dickens. I think, again, they've got several, but there's one that goes up around St Paul's and Fleet Street. So an area I haven't mentioned yet in connection with the London walking tours. And on this one, you will see, for instance, the building which was used by Dickens as a setting for Telson's Bank, which played an important role, you may remember, in A Tale of Two Cities. You'll see the site of the Blacking Factory, where Dickens himself worked as an 11 or 12-year-old. Perhaps be told something about his life then, the six-day week, the 12-hour days, the misery. We know that Dickens was sent there to earn some money to help the family out a little bit, while the rest were imprisoned with the father. We know that he made his own way from Marshalsea Prison across the other side of the river to the blacking factory here and back every day because he would return to the prison in the evenings for a meal with his family and then be sent out again alone to the lodgings that had been organised for him and all of this before he even reached his teens. On the same walk you'll go past the Newgate prison site, again a building which featured much in Dickens's novels where he made much of some of the details of life there For example, the bell ringing that took place every hour on a night before an execution of a prisoner. Your guide will probably point out the watch house to you, which is near St Bart's Hospital. The watch house being the place from which people kept watch overnight 
being paid to make sure that no one stole the corpses to sell them to surgeons. Almost certainly gave Dickens the idea for the character of Jerry Cruncher, the body snatcher in A Tale of Two Cities. Going on a walking tour like this definitely brings things to life. And in fact, both those companies have lots of other walks too, so definitely worth having a look at either website. And finally then, a second museum, again in the area, quite close to the Dickens Museum, at which you can learn all about an institution which Dickens was very much in sympathy with, and which he actually actively supported through funds raised by readings and so on. And that is the Foundling Museum. It was actually founded long before Dickens's time, in the 1740s in fact, as a place of refuge for foundlings, for orphans many of whom were brought to the foundling hospital when they were only a few days old by their desperate mothers who knew that they had no means of taking care of them. The original foundling hospital was a big building between Brunswick Square and Mecklenburg Square. The building itself is no more, although in fact the area it stood on exists still today, called Coram's Fields, after the founder Thomas Coram, who established the foundling hospital in 1739. The fields have been preserved even today as a playground for children, and the only playground in London, I believe, which you can't go into unless you are accompanied by a child. So the charity was founded as an attempt to do something about the bleak situation for small children in the 18th century whose parents couldn't take care of them. The mortality rate for under fives in general was 75%, and in the workhouses, where they were likely to end up, it was over 90%. It's estimated that in the mid-18th century, about a thousand babies a year were abandoned, and this charity then was in response to that an attempt to do something about it. So babies would be brought along and left there, and there was a system in place to label each child and retain a link to the person who'd brought him or her in, in the hope that maybe, possibly at some future date, they could be collected again. It's actually heartbreaking to hear how this was done, so here from the documents belonging to the hospital is a description. All persons who bring children are requested to affix on each child some particular writing or other distinguishing mark or token so that the child may be known hereafter if necessary. And then the person who brought the child in, perhaps usually the mother, would be given what they called a receipt. Quote, it is desired that it may be carefully kept that it may be produced if the child should at any time be claimed. Babies were often dispatched to the country until they were two or three, so they could be looked after by foster families. And then at the age of three, they'd come back to the hospital, where they would settle into life there, wearing little uniforms, brown serge dresses for the girls, jackets and breeches for the boys. They would begin to learn to read, they'd be given lots of exercise, and they would be trained to become useful members of society. The girls learning housework in the hope that perhaps one day they could become servants in households. The boys preparing to be sent to sea or perhaps to work in agriculture. And all of this was still going on in the 1830s when Dickens lived nearby in Doughty Street. That's probably when his involvement with the charity began. We know that he had financial input. He sponsored a pew in the chapel. He wrote pieces for magazines to raise its profile. And he helped too with more practical tasks. So sometimes, for example, endorsing petitions for mothers who were trying to get their children taken on. If you visit the museum, which is in Brunswick Square, then you get quite a sense of how things worked. 
Some of the rooms from the original Foundling Hospital were dismantled and reassembled here. There's a picture gallery, for example, containing some of the original paintings by artists such as Hogarth, who contributed works to the charity to help with fundraising. There is, for example, Hogarth's painting of Captain Thomas Coram. Paintings by other supporters. There's a bust of Handel, in recognition of the fact that he too helped to finance the charity. In fact, there's a separate room devoted to him called the Handel Gallery, showing letters he wrote and sheet music in his own hand, and his will. They've reconstructed the room that was known as the courtroom, where the governors of the charity did their fundraising, invited guests, people who they hoped were going to help them, and interviewed the people who brought babies, deciding which ones they would take and which ones they really didn't have room for. There are examples of petition letters that people sent, pleading their case. There's a collection of some of the tokens which were left for each child, little bits of ribbon, and something called the billet books, which were a list made for each child of the clothing they were wearing when they were brought in, and any distinguishing features, which could be used later as part of the proof that would be needed if somebody came to reclaim the child. To imagine Dickens being acquainted with all of this is a reminder of the social conditions he was surrounded by, some of which became prompts for the characters or the scenes in his novels. I think it would be nice to finish with one quotation from the great man himself. So here's another little section from Oliver Twist, in which poor Oliver is being dragged along by Mr Sykes somewhere in Hoburn. Quote, Now, young'un, said Sykes, looking up at the clock of St Andrew's Church, hard upon seven, you must step out. Come, don't lag behind, lazy legs. Mr Sykes accompanied this speech with a jerk at his little companion's wrist. Oliver, quickening his pace into a kind of trot between a fast walk and a run, kept up with the rapid strides of the housebreaker as well as he could. They held their course at this rate until they'd passed Hyde Park Corner and were on their way to Kensington when Sykes relaxed his pace until an empty cart, which was at some little distance behind, came up. Seeing Hounslow written on it, he asked the driver, with as much civility as he could assume, if he would give them a lift as far as Isleworth. Jump up, said the man. Is that your boy? Yes, he's my boy, replied Sykes, looking hard at Oliver and putting his hand abstractedly into the pocket where the pistol was. So, yes, Dickens tells us all about London, but first and foremost, he's just a cracking good storyteller. So then, that's the London of Charles Dickens, which you can find today in the museums I've talked about, which you can learn more about if you go on one of the guided walks I've mentioned and which, most of all, you can find in the pages of his novels. Today's episode has been the middle of three literary episodes, so following on from Chaucer and Shakespeare last time, and Charles Dickens today, next week we're off to Bloomsbury, that rather elegant, academic corner of London, which gave its name to a whole collection of authors and artists, the Bloomsbury Group. We'll have a wander around some of the squares, We'll meet some of the people who were in the Bloomsbury Group, cover a little bit about the work that they did, and look at the area as it is today, with its many bookshops and its world-class libraries and museums. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. I hope you'll join me in the next episode too. But for the moment, let me sign off by just thanking you very much for listening and saying goodbye. <laughs>